Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Wrath Bearing Trees podcast. We cover popular culture and how that intersects with veteran culture, especially literature and film. Today, I, Adrian Bonnenberger, am joined by repeat guest, Dr. Christiana Wilsey, an independent academic living in California. How are you, Dr. Wilsey? I'm doing well. How are you? Thanks for having me back. Doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. You're our first repeat guest, actually. Okay. Well, I'm honored. Um, So today I thought we'd talk about veteran storytelling, a subject you've done a lot of research on, and specifically uh, a recent paper you have uh, upcoming, that's a paradox, um, on the subject of stolen valor. Mm -hmm. To begin with, what is the valor and who's stealing it? That's always the, that's, that's the thing that nobody can quite pin down, right? I mean, stolen valor as a genre is people telling, uh, people, including veterans, telling military stories that, uh, that aren't their own, people uh, both lying outright or people embellishing their, their service records. But the kind of tricky, the tricky thing to pin down is, is where valor is located, right? Um, and this idea that there isn't really a, a currency. Wait. So I, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, the, what what is the valor? It's 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 a huge question, and this is right off the bat when uh, when we start talking about stolen valor, it becomes like almost immediately very difficult to even identify a crime. Yeah, and so the you know, in, in a legal sense, there was the Stolen Valor Act that made you know made this a sort of a, a felony to uh, lie about your service record, and then that was struck down by the um, it was U.S. versus Alvarez, and then sort of later reinstated by Obama as the Stolen Valor Act of 2013, which makes it, it, makes it only a crime uh, to benefit from so it's sort of a special category of fraud. Especially now, we're seeing such, so many conversations about, about cultural capital and all of the things that we do that don't benefit ourselves directly financially, but do, you know, they're, they're sort of parlayed into more complex systems of compensation you know, if you get a job out of, you know, lying for stolen valor, and then that job leads you to, to political office, for instance, you know, there's a lot of social uh, status that your reputation can lead you to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, so you did, so this paper that you did, which was um, about uh, who's... Ta- yeah, it's a, it's a... Go ahead. Sorry. It's just a, it's, it's a, a forthcoming talk. So it's not really a, it's not a research article. It's a talk that I gave at the American Folklore Society last fall. And it's um, being published in a special issue of the Journal of American Folklore uh, dedicated to fake news within this sort of broader umbe- umbrella of what does truth mean, especially in um, online communication and how has that become slippery? Right. And, and so when we talk about something like stolen valor, like there's the, like you said, the legal sense, which would be maybe, uh, maybe the easiest example would be, I go to buy a new house and somehow I'm able to convince a mortgage lender that I qualify for the, you know, no money down VA loan that gets guaranteed. He doesn't do due diligence. He doesn't see a DD-214 somehow. So then I have benefited from being a, val- a veteran. This is manifestly illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, what's more difficult is if I te- if I go down to the bar and say I'm a veteran I I deployed and somebody says you're a veteran well this drink is on me I and mean, I suppose that's that's more of a, a legal gray area yeah absolutely and that's that's the scenario that people point to most often or better or panhandling you know even uh, people wearing camo to panhandle sometimes people are 
protective of things like that. It becomes kind of an uncomfortable conversation because some people say, well, you know, they don't want to punch down. They, they think in conversations that I've had with vets and in this research that I've done, mostly just um, looking at online conversations, there's a lot of discomfort surrounding entitlement critiques because the thing is anything that you need to prove, you need to keep proving. So any kind of um, when you start having these conversations about what your veteran status, what your what your valor really is, or what you can translate it into, um, kind of the bottom drops out of it. The more you know, the the further into it you go. You know, if if um, whose service is the most meaningful, who has the most right to trade on that? A lot of people have this anxiety where they they feel that if you're if you're telling your stories at all, I mean, then at extreme end, some people say you can't really tell your war stories because they're implicitly some kind of currency. You're trying to make yourself look good or make yourself look good look big. And that devalues them. That makes them, it, it, for some people, makes them, it's, it's very offensive. But of course, we all need to tell our stories. And I, that was one of the things I really liked about your paper. I'm going to quote from it here. Um, the, one of the paradoxes, or not the paper, I've read it in paper form, so I can only think about it like a paper now. But as you say, it was a talk. That's fine. It's fine. The paradox of social currency is that it is and isn't currency. And it also, uh, it loses value. So you say, uh, you write... Um, unlike money, which accrues value through circulation, personal narratives as a currency lose credibility as they move through the world. Anything trading on authenticity is diluted by re reproduction. Repetition opens up a story to charges of insincerity. Hyperconscious of the oversaturated market for war stories, many vets confess to withholding their stories in an attempt to avoid false accusations. Yeah, and it's certainly, I think, um, places where if you're, if you're spending a lot of time, for instance, on like stolen, you know, Reddit subthread stolen valor, you become really hyper-conscious of these, the whole, the whole point of the conversation is people showing up there to say like, you know, I think this is stolen valor, right. or uh, can you believe these guys thought that I was stealing valor? And then other people who aren't military veterans, right. you know, who aren't um, veterans coming in to say, like, if I do this, is it stolen valor? And I may think that the thing that was funny to me and that made it maybe that made it interesting to me, uh, particularly, is the relationship between this conversation and conversations on not to make any broad assumptions about the politics oh, of right. Reddit stolen valor, but um, <laughs> I think generally no one on the left uses social justice warrior unironically. So I'm just gonna <laughs> that that it was it's it's comparable to conversations about cultural appropriation. You know that these are. Identity is always this kind of currency, um, but when you're trading on your own identity, it's implicitly um, inauthentic, and so you you can't really do it. You can trade on other people's identity, uh, but when you're doing it yourself, somehow it, it makes you look insincere. Interesting. Did you? Um, I I don't remember encountering this in the paper, but something that occurs to me right now is what amount of consideration did you give for people whose relatives are in the military and? Uh, talk about uh, things that their relatives or friends did, which is another thing that one encounters, which isn't really stealing valor, but seems more explicitly like a kind of appropriation. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, I think, I think generally, if you're crediting other people's stories, I mean, I'm from a military family, and I, I tell my dad's stories sometimes, stories that he's told me, as stories of things that happened to him, he becomes this kind of legendary figure. And what's funny, my dad's a Vietnam veteran who was, you know, uh, special forces veteran and a uh, helicopter pilot and had a very uh, storied military career. Some of his stories are things my brother tells his friends and then his friends tells us things. This is, I mean, through folklore, this is always very interesting because this is how um, different genres of stories move through the world. You know, someone's personal narrative about, for instance, I'm, I'm working on a thing about Twitter ghost stories right now. 
um, someone's personal experience of the supernatural that we call a memora um, kind of becomes a popular enough story that it moves beyond that original teller and it becomes something like a legend, like a supernatural story of just, you know, that exists in the world tied to that one teller anymore. Um, so I don't know if considerations made, but there's definitely um, stories move. That's what's, that's what's, uh, that's the nature of stories. Stories travel by becoming other people's stories. But right. for something like um, personal narratives that are um, only someone very sensitive would say it is stolen valor to say this happened to a friend of mine. Um, but I, I do think that it becomes a little, it's obvious that you're, you don't have a story here. It's obvious that you don't have um, your own access to this conversation or this story circle. I did a lot of my research. If I, people are make storytelling work, what makes it lively is people second storying each other. You know, um, for instance, you know if someone is telling a story and it works, if someone responds with another story. Same with, with jokes or with riddles. You have a cycle of these things that kind of grow and build. If a story doesn't work, if someone tells a story badly, generally no one's going to say, well, that was a bad story and you should be ashamed of yourself. Most of the time, the, the thing that people do politely is to change the subject. And any, anytime you say something stupid, the, the, the way that the universe corrects you is just right. to, to move on from that and and to not build on it. So if you want to keep a story, keep a conversation going, as I would do when I was trying to have that's tell me stories, um, then you want to try to create a story cycle. You know, you want a second story somewhat. That's really interesting. I've never heard that term before, but I, I, I like it. That's, uh, that's great. Mm -hmm. Although it does have this, not everyone does it the same way. Um, and some people find it, like you said, kind of vampiric somehow, not, not to tell someone else's story, but that if someone tells a story and instead of re relating to their story specifically, you tell a similar story about something that happened to you, it also draws focus back to you. So some people find it selfish. It, it, it can be. And I suppose framing is a big part of that. If you, I had a friend, I, maybe everybody has a friend when they're growing up that's like this, who, who what, no matter what the story was, um, he always had a better story. So the joke was you would, you know, tell a story about you know after christmas vacation where you went on vacation and like his vacation would always be like better than yours in in some way and just going to it was it, it, you know he tried if you went a thousand miles he traveled 1200 miles if you stayed at a five-star hotel he stayed at a six-star hotel it was just ridiculous um and uh i think that's that's the annoying thing but you're right that there is you want I'd never thought about that before, but you do want that conversation to happen. You want it to be something where people can participate in what's happening, which is the the sharing of stories instead of a, a sort of monomaniacal um, delivery of a, a specific narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this, this thing about um, competitive storytelling, which is that, you know, what you're talking about, um, I mean, that fits neatly into these conversations about stolen valor because... Um, I would hear from a lot of people that um, when I did my dissertation research that, that competitive storytelling wasn't, you know, that, that that's, this was the problem with, with veteran storytelling is that everything becomes a pissing contest, you know, and so that, that everything would escalate. And the kind of um, the problem with that is that you're treating stories as a currency, that you're saying my, my story has more value than yours. Mine has more more weight in the world. I can use this to get better things out of the world than you can. And that that's very mm -hmm. uncomfortable because people are saying, uh, well, if we treat our stories as currency, then... For one thing, what if you don't, what if you um, had a, a military career where, um, you know, you're not a combat veteran, you didn't do anything particularly cinematic, you know, you didn't have the kind of military service that you see in, you know, Call of Duty. So it makes it 
weird to talk about it. And then people make these assumptions about what your service was like when there's this distinction between traumatic narratives and untellable narratives that sometimes things, there are stories that can't be told because they're too painful. And sometimes there are stories that can't be told because there's no real social context for them. Maybe they're just too, maybe they're too boring, not to, not to people who did the same kind of job as you, but because they're specialized, they're specialized discourse. My dad and my brother are both helicopter pilots. And when they tell stories about helicopters, they're very interesting to both of them, but I can't always follow, you know, and I think that's characteristic of whatever kind of job you do in the service or out of it. And so there are plenty of jobs in the service that are very important jobs. A friend of mine is like a, a mechanic who's, you know, keeping the helicopters up in the air. And, you know, some grueling story for him is, is being able to work through this, this really long shift and make sure everything was operational. But doesn't, they're not probably going to make a video game about that, you know? Right. But right. that's that's a problem because we don't just need certain kinds of jobs, right? So if you're talking about narratives as a currency, then you don't just want to constantly valorize people who did big dramatic, you know, who are in big dramatic firefights. And you also... Um, Something that I'd heard hear, hear from people um, is that if you're making stories into a competition, there's kind of this this presence of of the dead, of people who have died, and their stories, the existence of those stories that couldn't be told, basically just destroys the market for competitive storytelling. There's there's, you know, hmm. these are the stories you're never going to beat, and they're the stories you're never going to hear. And then I had other people tell me, well, let's. The dead are not necessarily the most heroic. You can die in a number of stupid ways. This lends itself to propaganda. So I don't know. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of moving parts to it as a conversation. And nevertheless, uh, stories do have currency. And that's why the, the tension exists around them, is that there is this um, social currency is important, um, more important in certain spaces than others. But I, I can understand why people would want to regulate stolen valor and, and and why people find it annoying that people that there are actors out there essentially actors or in many cases mentally mentally disturbed people or people who, who experience shame um i guess as a physical you know maybe physically they experience shame like as like real pain uh which would be awful so it does get you something and i and you don't want people to diminish the thing that not that you get but you don't want I don't know. Maybe is 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 that what it is? Is that people? Is that the 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 impulse to to police stolen valor stories? Is is just like I I don't want my story to get diminished by, by these actors, or is it something else? Well, I think if you make the claim that someone else's story could diminish yours, um, I think no one wants to say that, and that's what that's what makes these conversations, you know, about stolen valor, or you know, this article is pointing out also about in other places about cultural appropriation, that um, you know, if you're making that argument that um authenticity is currency you know like you're you don't want your stories to be currency because that means that they can't be devalued by other people's lives but they can <laughs> um i do think that when we when we hear a lot of one kind of story it creates an appetite for stories like that that make it harder for less tellable or outright traumatic stories to be heard so maybe the, the complicated part of it is that an experience has no intrinsic value outside yourself. Like the experience is whatever you, however you encounter it and what it, what you learn from it or fail to learn from it. The experience gains external value when it becomes a story. The stories then do have value. Any story has a value. Is that, have I understood mm -hmm. that correctly? Or Well, a story that you tell is, it's, I mean, every personal narrative is a work of art, right? Everything is, um, all these stories are, are 
labored over. Something that I always thought was interesting is one of the things that people resent about Stolen Valor is that people who who weren't there will tell really excellent stories. That they'll, you know, they'll say, oh, the guys who weren't there will tell the best stories. And it's because it's because they don't they only have to remember the story they're telling and not all the stories they're not telling. They're not going through this process of, of sort of laboriously sorting out um, meaning from experiences, some, you know, meaningful experiences from experiences that either aren't meaningful or that people won't allow to be meaningful. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. All right, so um, off the top of your head, do you remember from your research, are there any um, any stories that, that jump out to you as like particularly compelling or well-crafted, albeit uh, disingenuous? Oh, I mean, the thing is, and this, I mean, I, I met people, this is, I mean, people always want to ask me this, like, how do you know no one was lying to you? And I mean, the truth is I don't. No one does. I, all of the, 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 um, the vets that I, you know, that I talked to, I met through veteran student organizations, but I don't know how well everyone vets, you know, all of their members. I like to think I would know, but um, I mean, better people than me have been fooled. Oh, uh, I- so I can't... I, yeah. I can't refer to any of my stories as any. I, I didn't. I didn't uncover any frauds in my research. No. Yeah, and I, I'm sorry. I didn't. I should have uh, clarified. I mean, specifically with the stolen valor paper, you're going through these reddits, you're reading these accounts. Uh, I mean, or did I misunderstand? Did you did you not have access to the store the stolen valor stories themselves? And was it specifically the incidents of stolen valor that you were evaluating, or the re- responses to them? In this paper. I was evaluating the responses to the stolen valor. Okay. I wasn't interested in, um, I mean, there's obviously, there's already these people out there who are stolen valor detectives who are kind of making it their job. And, and part of it is the reason they can make it their job is that the best person to evaluate whether a story is true is someone who has that identity that you're trying to sell, you know? Right. So I was interested, something that didn't make it into the paper was how I thought it was curious that it, on these viral videos that you can, you know, on YouTube, for instance, they're very specific about the kind of stolen valor it is. And I wondered whether there's something particularly satisfying or cathartic about, you know, going like, this guy's a ranger, this is a ranger, I'm a ranger, would I know if a guy were a ranger? Right. You know, that you're constantly kind of like testing yourself and you're watching these people and you're thinking, would I sound like that? Or would I, if one of my, you know, someone I met in the world had said that, would I question it? Yeah. So, and because we obviously, I think people outside the military don't often think about how, what a giant bureaucracy the military is as an institution. There's so many different kinds of jobs that you might have. Um, that it, if you don't have the exact kind of career as someone else, or if you have a kind of unusual career, you know, some people end up joining in. Um, I, I have a friend who was a Marine and then re-enlisted in the army later. And so if you, if you have a bunch of, you know, people are reading someone's uniform and if, if they have, you know, campaign ribbons that look unusual, they'll think that's a fraud, but you don't really know someone else's story. And sometimes you, people have had life experiences that you wouldn't expect. I do think there's there's one story that's not a story. It's it's like a meta story, and I love that about it. Um, <laughs> like I talked to I talked to a guy who is you know he's telling a story like you're saying about about a friend of his who was a great storyteller, making fun of these kinds of competitive story like pissing contest narratives that you know he was being very critical of that people who served on base with more kind of prestigious branches of the service if if you were attached to a unit that had a Navy SEAL in it, then people would cozy up to those guys and they'd try to learn their stories. And then they would, they would kind of recast their stories in the reflected light of these more, you know, fantastic stories. And so, you know, his friend would do a parody of this where he's saying, one time I was, I was working with this SEAL, this, we had gate guard, and this guy came up to me and he touched me 
He does the E.T. finger. He's sort of reaching out. And he says, <laughs> now you have my Navy SEAL powers. And I had his Navy SEAL powers. You know, this idea that that you can, that that's what storytelling really does, is that by telling someone yeah. else's stories, that you're, there's this kind of um, prestige or allure that's going to come through the performance and come over you, you know, like magic. Well, I have, I mean, I can give you a reading recommendation. There's a fantastic article from um, a folklorist and a uh, documentary filmmaker, Bruce Jackson, um, called uh, the perfect informant. It's 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 a very it's a narrative essay about his experience effectively being taken being taken in by a Vietnam veteran or you know a, a fraudulent Vietnam veteran, uh, someone that that he became close to and was working with, and then um, who was eventually outed to him by another veteran over this detail about um, uh, gosh, what's what's the explosive that's sensitive at temperatures. Uh-oh, stolen dollar, I don't know. No, I... I <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, w- the explosive... What does what what it do again? What, what, can you... Not C4. You know, oh, gosh. Um, yeah, that, you know, he's saying that, that this guy's story involved this com- this detail of him working with C4 and this particularly saying this would be unstable at temperatures like that. And then the whole story kind of okay, unraveling. yeah, yeah. Um, and all of these people... All, all of these people um, that had, had kind of known about this and, and said, well, but he was such a good storyteller. I mean, I was there and I couldn't tell stories the way he did. Uh, but he makes this kind yeah. of interesting um, kind of psychological interpretation where he said basically he was he was always wound looking for a story. There's a, someone in the world who was kind of, who was broken and he needed a story, someone else's story even, to make that wound make sense. That's a, that's a very compassionate and useful way of looking at it. Is that is it related at all to Munchausen syndrome, or is that something that's like just totally different, like a person that is a fabulist? I don't know. Um, I think people who are who are very dedicated and maintain long term frauds. I think many of them probably would qualify. For, you know, you know, have some kind of mental illness. This is the Tanya Head, the woman who claimed to be a nine eleven widow? Um, they've made movies about her, but I mean, that's that's like a that's a very high level of fraud that she maintained for years with, you know, all kinds of different moving parts and details. And she was, she was a very high profile, like 9-11 widow who was involved in, in many like charities and, and uh, sort of fundraising organizations and volunteer groups and stuff. It's, it's interesting in part, especially the, the, the quality of the story that you mentioned, because uh, it's something that I was thinking about earlier over the last couple of days. I'm not sure why, exa- I, I, I know why, but it's not worth getting into here is, uh, is that at some point in history, um, and you taught you referenced this earlier. You touched on it when you talked about how stories turn into legend or myth. At some point in history, there were few enough people in the world that experiences could have been experiences told as stories uh, could have been shaped and shifted over time in the hands of storytellers. And what we got eventually were these sort of like mythical retellings of the the you know the the, the acts of heroes. Uh, fighting fighting gods or battling with monsters or whatever else and it's really probably just like a scrawny dude who's five two who like shot an arrow and it actually killed a boar it was like one in a million shot um but that turns into hercules hercules fighting a a a, a giant or whatever else and so and and the part of it that that seems relevant for the this for this discussion is that story when it's told originally is probably like very poorly told, as you were saying, by the person who lived it, who did it, it, it experienced it emotionally, was there, 
just describes like, hey, so when you're aiming at the boar, aim for the eye. It drops him in one shot. You'll get, you know, if you're in a bad pinch with the bow and arrow, you might be able to pull it off. Otherwise, you'll probably die. And then in, at some point, somebody hears that they're not a boar hunter. That's just not their thing. They're the storyteller. And they tell that story the way that they think it ought to be told. And if this is the case, that like clever, um, not necessarily unscrupulous, but wounded people looking for an experience uh, make exceptional storytellers. It is possible that at some point in history, like our idea of what was what is valorous or good as a story was shaped by this type of person. Huh. Um, I don't I don't know. I mean, I'm always a little dubious of, of sort of, of, of origin stories, of, of evolutionary psychology. I mean, I don't think that you need to go back into, you know, prehistory to find examples of people embroidering dramatic tales, you know, to find the storyteller. I mean, that's, you could say that's, that's what American Sniper is. I mean, you already have, you have one person having, you have, you have a real person in the story and then you have Hollywood, you know. We, we have examples of this sort of thing happening now that we can measure. Um, I'm sorry, re restate the, the question that you said at the end. So the, 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 I guess the question is, when we talk about stolen valor, there's this thing, valor, or um, an authentic experience that reflects well on you, that you have lived, uh, that can be stolen or appropriated by people who have not lived the experience. Mm -hmm. In some cases, the people who have, perhaps out of necessity, these people who have not lived the experiences develop a better story, a true, not a truer story, but a more entertaining the story you feel in the stomach, right? Right. Maybe it's possible that when we look at the types of things that we think are valorous, one of the reasons we think that they're valorous is that these are the things that these specific people feel are important to them. I think there's a fairly good, you know, there's, there's some kind of consensus over what valor should mean. It's someone who has risked life and limb for important causes. You know, it's someone who's faced and conquered bodily harm. I mean, that's this, the thing is, though, that because our, you know, we have a big, complicated machine of a military, not everyone is, uh, you know, on the front line. And that doesn't mean that all of the jobs that are, are less proximate to danger are less important. But I think that that is probably the thing that gets lost in some of these, you know, that's why people are kind of cozying up to SEALs. Well, but it's also, you know, when we talk about that thing that you, you, the thing that you mentioned that really jumped out to me is sort of, you know, the, the, it's, it's the aesthetics of the storyteller that, that the aesthetics, it's the aesthetics of the storyteller that are driving the story. It's not just, it's, it's, it's sort of like this, the storyteller and the audience and what the storyteller is, is looking for that, that is, that is driving what valor is and your point about you know chris kyle for example or the modern military and and or the consensus of valor to me seems it, it seems to me that a, a story about heart not just about hardship but also about overcoming doing something very difficult my understanding of the seals and the rangers and special forces is that they do things that are technically quite difficult but in um you know as far as, you know, old school battle goes, it's not like the Hundred Years' War. It's not like wielding swords and each battle is a battle with you and your enemy or two or three enemies. It's like we have you know, planes and artillery and most of the other guys don't. And it's really like sometimes you'll get into a, a bad firefight and that's a story. But it's, you know, the planes always show up like maybe a couple times in the last 18 years they haven't showed up. 
So we have this extraordinary advantage and it's the story really is almost like, you know, what's the difference between a chef like stacking heavy boxes for hours upon hours on end and a guy on a radio just saying like, here's the grid square they are. And then like, yep, fire for effect. You got them. Just keep, keep shooting the artillery. And while somebody who's a very bad shot is shooting at you from 800 meters away, like it's almost more of a miracle if you get hit than if you don't. And yes, there are bad days in that, but I guess again, just sort of, I, I'm sorry for sort of rambling so much with it. The point I'm, I'm, I'm getting at here is the stolen valor storyteller, like could plausibly say I was in the military and I, you know, I was in all these fights and they were really hard and hairy, but we got through them. We got through them. Whereas a long time ago, you know, it's, it's harder to imagine a guy saying like, yes, I'm an expert swordsman and I've defeated dozens, nay hundreds of swordsmen because then a swordsman could be like oh cool let's go you know fence since you're an expert maybe you could teach me something it'd be like ah but i hurt my wrist is the thing well i think i take your broader point which is that yes i mean the, the stolen valor is a lot easier to do um when very few when a very small number of of um the country's combat vets you know in a time when it's 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 much easier to lie to people who don't know what your life should look like than to people who do right and as we become more you know a there's just more people in the world. Sometimes I think about this, like, you know, I think about the world that I live in as opposed to, you know, the world that, that like my parents lived in when they were young. There's twice as many people in the world. What kind of implications does that have for all kinds of individual liberties? And, and you know, that, that, that idea of like yelling fire in a crowded theater, or you have the freedom to kind of put your arms out and stand in the world and, you know, spin in a circle. And we have less and less of that as there's more people. And there's, you know, more of us doing more specialized tasks all the time. You know, there's, Everyone has a particular skill set, and the stories that we tell are going to be appealing to our own little community. Um, they're not necessarily, um, I don't know that I think that there's some kind of ancestor of the Valor story, because I think that stories are always tailor-made for specific communities. Um, you know, they're, they're always a good story, for instance, um, this is something I was really interested in, is that a, a good story told within someone's particular community among a group of combat vets would not be the story that they told me. And that story wouldn't work as well on me as it would on their friends because we just come into it with different information and we're impressed by different things. Yeah. Yeah. I still think it's, it's possible that there's like the conception of the, the valor stealer who is an exceptionally good storyteller in Mesopotamia or China or wherever else could have actually had this weird feedback loop where you know, this person figures out like exactly how to tell the story, the way it interests them, the way it's most compelling to the audience. And then you have warriors that are sort of like, oh, wow, I got to because they don't have any way of necessarily validating that. They're saying, oh, like, oh, you oh, mean wow, performance that's... is a different. Yeah, performance is a different skill set than, um, than sword fighting, certainly. Some people are, are lucky and have both. But yeah, probably by and large, most people being able to uh, tell a story that is structured and artful and forceful and contains a lot of these sort of poetic qualities that you that hit you without you fully realizing it you know symmetry stories that have one thing that i was interested in my, in my research was the relationship between narrative breakdowns and and sort of narrative breakthroughs into performance these kinds of really artful stories that you see and this isn't something that i know of i i don't know that it's a common feature of stolen valor narratives because most of the ones that you see popping up on on youtube they're pretty these are not you know masterful frauds they're they're people who are they're they've got a story that they it only needs to last them long enough to to get a beer or to get a discount or something right you know there's very few people who are i think living 
long, detailed, <laughs> fully fleshed out lies. Like those people are the ones you feel a little worried about. When you're telling a story the first time, badly, generally, there's a lot of qualities that are markers of authenticity. There are places where um, repetition, as you're trying to kind of pin the story down before it gets away from you. Gaps in the story, long silences where you forget what you're supposed to say. And in, in masterful performances, those things get reincorporated in the, um, their sort of structure gets sublimated into, into ornament. So you, you, you play with all of these things that would ordinarily drag a story down. You, there's obviously silences and sometimes there's extended pauses in an artful performance that are, that are measured. And that's not the story getting away from the teller. Uh, but it is, as an audience member, mo supposed to remind you that it could. You know, there's a lot of repetition in, in, in a particular artful, structured, symmetrical way in masterful stories. You, if something shows up in the beginning, you know, in a good story, Chekhov's gun gets fired, right? In, the bad, in a bad personal narrative, sometimes you forget what you were trying to talk about. You know, you, you start the story and then it becomes some other story entirely uh, by the time you get to the end of it. And those are generally stories that don't don't travel because, or, you know, don't travel nearly so much, especially beyond your, your small social circle, because they're, they're not well packaged for travel. You know, good stories are, are well packaged to travel. You tell them and they move around. And I think that's what's, that's the appeal also of, of people. That's kind of the paradox. If you tell a story really well, if you have some kind of masterful, beautiful story, it's meant to move. And that's what makes it easy mm. for someone else to take it. Yeah. And want to own it. People want to own those stories. Yeah. Because you, you have a meaning, right? But if you have a good, masterful story, you have a set of events that you have told in a particular way, gives that series of events some kind of purpose. And if it's the kind of purpose that is, you know, if, if the meaning is, um, I did this heroic thing in this good war, that's a story that has a lot of currency in the world. Not everybody's, you know, packaged stories. I mean, much more common to think, I think, I, a lot of more of the stories that I encountered were, I did this good thing in a war that was mostly confusing and maybe not all good. But here was me in this moment doing a good thing. And that's, that's a, a kind of dicey maneuvering that was particularly interesting to me. You know, how do you have personal coherence for a narrative when a war, the larger war, doesn't have coherence? You know, when we as a society have these ongoing wars that we've yet to kind of create a... We've yet to settle on the meaning of what that war was in the way that I think we have for uh, World War II or Vietnam. There's a public, public consensus in a way that I think we're still lacking because right. we don't have an end. Right. That, uh, that makes me think, too, for some reason, of the stories that ought to be almost unimpeachably valorous <laughs> end up being very contentious. And I can think of three of those off the top of my head, all of which involving the Navy SEALs, just because those tend to be the highest profile stories. You have Lone Survivor, um, which uh, I don't know how much you followed that, like sort of the evolution of that story. But there is... Um, in the beginning, you know, you've got the movie version of it, and then you've got Marcus Luttrell uh, saying, you know, he was with his unit and they fought against the Taliban and the Taliban were overwhelmed and then they had to retreat. And then you have the Taliban's version of that story because they're recording themselves. Um, and then you've got like the interpret, the, the dude who saved Marcus Luttrell's life. And it turns out like the details, some of the details of his story weren't exactly true and it's not clear whether he embellished them to make him sound better like he had 11 magazines of of ammunition on him like that's the basic that's what everybody had at the beginning of the mission so he must not have been running around like shooting his weapon the whole time for him to have all of his ammunition on him uh this isn't to say that he didn't fire any ammunition or pick others up but it just means that it didn't go down exactly the way that he said probably. Then you've got Operation Red Wings and you've got like the Air Force's version of event. I'm sorry, 
Operation Red Wings was Lone Survivor. Then there's this other operation that happens in 2001 where, not getting into any details, but the SEALs have their version of the story, then the Air Force has their version of the story, and they kind of, like, don't match up. Um, and then finally, the one that, like, ought to be the, the, the clearest cut of all is the guy who shot bin Laden, right? Like, that's the ultimate, uh, at least in Afghanistan, like, global war on terror story. is like the guy that closed closed the book, right? And firstly, it's not exactly sure whether there's some question over whether the guy who said that he shot bin Laden was the guy who shot bin Laden. And then you also have, um, you know, the fact that if he did sort of like, well, so what also? I mean, I'm not saying so what, but this has been the reaction to it is that that should be the, you know, the GWAT story, quad GWAT war stories to beat them all. And even that seems not to have the currency that that one would think. And uh, yeah, so and I think you're right. I think it does come back to the war hasn't the wars haven't ended yet, and we're not sure what to make of it. Um, in the same way that you could say now, looking back on things like, oh, the guy who killed Hitler, you know, in 1945. I mean, I know he committed suicide, but oh, the yeah, the army sniper shot Hitler, hero. You know, that guy's a hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's true. I think it's difficult to either. I mean. It's difficult to, like, I mean, this to fully love or to fully hate someone who's um, like has all of these, um, not necessarily that's still alive, but it's still part of contempt, like recent history for, for me. I don't think everyone experiences that, but, but um, you know, you have. This is why I thought the the idea was that, like the Catholic Church doesn't canonize saints until every. I think this might actually not be true, but I'd always heard that they you couldn't be a saint if anyone who knew you was still alive. Just folk knowledge, probably. That sounds true. But part of that, this idea that that's how long it takes someone to become um, not so much themselves, but the story of themselves, which um, we can have an we can have a kind of cohesive idea about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. That's that's smart because you're you're actually what you're actually doing is whether or not that's true, uh, whether or not that's factual, uh, that sounds right because what you're doing is you're not canonizing a person. You're gonna look it up later. You're you're canonizing a story, really. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah, and you have all these, I think, stories that involve many actors, many, many, you know, characters and participants. Everyone thinks that, like, eyewitness testimony, for instance, is very accurate. Everyone is so sure that they were there and they couldn't be wrong. And we think that our experiences um, feed into our stories, but it's our stories that shape our experiences, right? You know, you you go back and you, you re-put things together in the order um, that you need. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So uh, last question, I know you've probably got other stuff you need to do today, and I really appreciate your time, as always. No, I'm all right. Is uh, how did you get interested in the subject to begin with, apart from it's just a really fascinating subject? I mean, I think I was interested in military narrative because I was interested in narrative, and I was interested in narrative in places where things got hard. And I think part of why I write about, I was interested in military narrative mainly because of my family. Um, and because, going back to, I suppose, the cultural appropriation conversation, um, I'm always very concerned with whose story, who benefits from a from a particular story. Who's, I mean, who has the who's who has the right to a story? I do think genuinely that many people work in communities. I mean, many many anthropologists and folklorists and sociologists work in communities that that aren't their own. That they have no hmm. genetic or historical or familial right to and uh, do amazing work because um, they they make that right with their with their commitment. You know, they they. Um, they do the work and that becomes their place. But I always found it very um, nerve wracking to kind of go in and, and assume that I had a place in 
so I wanted to do folklorists traditionally have studied at home and anthropologists have studied abroad. I mean, that's kind of one of these these older distinctions. Um, assuming that you are a folklorist who studies, uh, so it's a pretty, um, I realize, as I said it, Eurocentric distinction. Folklore was the, you know, traditional culture of like rural peasantry in Europe in the 18th century. And yeah, exactly. You know, so in that sense, you were studying, if you were a European scholar of the 18th century, studying fairly close to you and studying uh, people close to you. And so that kind of, that made me want to study people close to me. The folk. Well, just because it comes up so often, because it's one of these things that, you know, everyone, everyone mentions, you know, that's some of these things that there are some things that um, there, there are some parts of, of doing research where you go in with a set of questions and then other times um, there are things that are constantly presented to you as this is interesting or, or this is significant. And for me, I mean, separately from, from Stolen Valor, the things that were constantly presented to me by my interlocutors, by the people that I was speaking with were... Um, it's very uncomfortable when people, thank you for your service. That one was, was way up there. Um, and then also people saying, everyone is always asking me if I've ever killed anyone. Like that was this, I don't know whether it happens at a numerically higher level or whether it's just so psychologically weighted. But when I ask people, what do people want to talk, want you to talk about? Like, that was the thing. They want to ask if they, they, they um, they're saying they, everyone wants to know if I have killed someone. And I think both of these are related they are, they are two poles of this conversation about stolen valor, because these are the stories that travel. This is what people care about. They care about um, danger, and they care about sort of an abstract heroism that they can slot into a story they already have. You know, the last thing this, that occurs to me listening to you talk about this is um, is because I, I, I'm always thinking about counterfactuals um, because there's something wrong with my brain, I suppose. Um, I was thinking of whether, like, there must be a case of... of and actually, you, you brought this up earlier, there must be cases of people who uh, who are telling true stories, who are misidentified as people who are doing stolen valor and must then be vindicated. Uh, I'm not aware of any specifics within the, the veteran community, but I am aware of one famous case um, in the journalism community, which was, um, I don't remember, I think his first name was Richard, but his last name was Jewett. He was the guy who successfully identified the bomb at the, I think the 1992 or 1996, maybe it was 1996 Olympics, um, and was then uh, misidentified as, and he enjoyed about a day of fame where people were like, yeah, he's, you know, he's this fat security guard. And then like, he had his moment of fame where he saw this bag and he was like, hey, this is this looks suspicious. Get everyone out of the area. It goes off. It hurts some people, but far more people like it would have it would have in, killed dozens and injured hundreds. Um, and then like within 24 hours, somebody like said that he was a suspect and he became tarnished as, you know, the the, the Atlanta it was the Atlanta Atlanta Olympics. He was the guy who had done it. He was later vindicated because it wasn't him who had done it. They just sort of like the media decided over two or three days. And it was part of this like new, relatively new 24 hour news cycle where somebody can get, you know, uh, accused and convicted in the public court of law, the public court, the court of public opinion without any uh, uh, without any judge. Um, well, if you're spinning a narrative you want conservation of characters right it makes it's the most appealing to keep public attention not to say that that's um you know that, that journalists who are who are telling the story on television are are responsible for twisting it in one way or, or another but presumably 
it's it's hard to get around the kind of virality of oh it's someone it's the suspect is someone we already know right like law and order they never just like find somebody in the last five minutes and it's someone who hasn't been in the show at all <laughs> right right and they're like oh, well we got the wrong guy i guess it's a cold case fellas yeah <laughs> i'd like to see that actually like this is it's like a like parody law and order yeah well, this is, I, I'm actually, it's really good to hear that because like, I often think like, I, you know, I've seen every show, I've seen them all. Um, and at, at this point, you know, we, we, because there are so many inventive, uh, very creative, excellent storytellers, it's refreshing when you see that there, there is still opportunity for new, uh, for new episodes that would be like that, where it's like, yeah, just, you know, red herring, see, Law and Order red herring. Yeah. I mean, I do think, here's the thing though, if you are... I see this, I've been thinking about this lately because I, I think it's just such a a recurrent thread in um, particularly science fiction shows recently um, where like like Westworld or Black Mirror, they're both shows that ultimately shame you for watching the show. You know, they're, they're shows that are critiquing the passive engagement of storytelling itself. And ultimately, I think that is not good for storytelling. You can't tell a good story if the point of your story is, is that stories are manipulative and they don't work. Yeah. So actually, this is uh, this is one of the things I talk with uh, my friend Mike Carson about probably the most is uh, that that story in the in the military writing community, which is a, a collection called The Things They Carried. And, um, you know, one of the like the primal the primary claims of the things they carried is that there's no such thing as a true war story. Boom. That's it. You know, the conversation's over. You know, don't write this because you can you can try, but you can you can never top that absolute claim to authentic inauthenticity. You can be entertained by a war story, but it's not true. You know. Yeah, but of course, yeah, but but O'Brien is also constantly he's doing that constantly, and it's this sort of balancing act of he's constantly telling really engaging stories and telling you not to believe them. You know, it's 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 always um, it's a text that's constantly at war with itself. Right. Right. Um. Having said that, though, it is you, 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 I mean, find yourself enjoying the, the craftsmanship and, and, and the, uh, the skill with which he tells these stories. And it's, you know, I've, I've read the book and I've, I've, many times at this point, I've taught the book and it's, it's, it's great. Um, having said that, like with Black Mirror, which I've, I've, I've also watched, of course, uh, you do find yourself saying like, man, what the good point, comma, what's so, so what, you know? So what then? Yeah. What do you want me to do with this? No, and I think I think that's that's where it's useful to not be an academic, but to be someone who like that was that was what always really um, that was the thing that surprised me about doing dissertation dissertation research is that I went into it this this very like I mean academic criticism is so relentlessly negative. You're constantly it's the hermeneutics of suspicion, right? You're constantly trying to peel back the layers and and sort of feed things to this meat grinder of theory, which you're inevitably going to find out that the text is racist and sexist and capitalist and, you know, colonialist and all of the bad isms. Um, but that, what are you going to do with that? You know, like it's, um, and so I'd gone into, you know, doing research with veterans with this idea that I was thinking um, this, this expectation, this call to performance is constantly so manipulative and so doomed, you know, that you're asking people to tell stories that are guaranteed to fail and you're holding them responsible for those failures ultimately. Um, because when, when stories fall apart, people look, look incompetent, they look damaged. And then as, as a broader community, veterans look damaged. Um, and that was something that was worrying to me. So I was thinking, what, well, what can we really do with this? But that wasn't what the veterans that I talked to were saying. They weren't saying, the only people who were saying you can't tell your stories are people who um, were like 
really still in the middle of very important therapy. <laughs> you know, like everyone was saying, you know, it's going to fail and you have to do it anyway. And I thought that was really good advice. You know, Sebastian Younger had wrote this, wrote this thing for, I think the New York Times, where he was saying, don't, don't valorize this, this narrative of, well, people are too, they're, what they've gone through, you could never know. He's saying, no, like, don't, don't fetishize pain in that way. You know, like, what's the, the Terrence quote? I'm human. Nothing human is alien to me. You know, you're going to fail and you have to keep trying. That's what society is. That's a great place to end it. I think that's a, a great last word. Thanks to Dr. Wilsey for joining us again on WBT. Check the show notes to see her social media handles and keep an eye out for her research. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter at RathBT, W-R-A-T-H-B-T. And if you like our content, share it with your friends. <laughs>